You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And Ryan, today you wanted to start off by introducing us to a concept called determinantal point processes. Yeah, that's right. It's kind of a fun idea that's been receiving some attention in the literature lately. Um, and I, I think I most closely associate it with uh, Alex Kaleza and uh, the late Ben Taskar. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this really kind of kind of neat idea thinking about how to produce random sets of objects that are diverse. Now, um, so it's a determinantal point process. So point processes are random procedures that give us sets of objects, so random sets. Um, that doesn't sound like it's that general, but actually there's a lot of things that we that we study that have these properties. Um, in particular, you might have heard of something called the Poisson process. Mm-hmm. A uh, Poisson process is, is kind of like a canonical point process. We often think of it as being... Um, a way to get like random events in time. So that might be, you know, you're standing at a bus stop waiting for buses to arrive and they kind of are random with some amount of time between them and maybe we would model that with something like a Poisson process. There's other things too, neural spiking in the brain and so on that we model with these kinds of things. They can also be spatial. So we might think of the distribution of trees in a forest or galaxies in the universe or something like that as being as being point processes. The Poisson process is classic one. It's very important to lots of different sort of areas of probability. It's very elegant and and in some sense very independent. That is, you know, the interactions, if you will, between the points you get from it are very weak. I mean, they're essentially independent. And so that's great for doing different kinds of math and doing kinds of simple modeling. But a lot of times what we want are interesting interactions, either things clustering, like maybe galaxies might cluster together due to gravity and not be quite uniformly distributed, or maybe they repulse each other a little bit. So if we were modeling trees in a forest, then uh, they those trees compete for resources, you know, with roots and things, and they also have spatial extent. So they tend to they tend to repel each other to some degree, and these deviate from the Poisson assumptions. And we like to invent other kinds of point processes to handle these cases of things being grouped together more or sort of pushing each other away more. The determinantal point process is an example of a point process in which things repel each other. This happens via a kind of a similarity measure uh, called a kernel function that we use in a lot of um, in a lot of different things like support vector machines and kernelized principal components analysis and a lot of other things. So, so the kind of similarity measures that we're used to using in a lot of other settings, here we get to use them to decide um, when a particular set has a lot of similar items in it and define a preference over um, over sets in which things tend to be not so similar. Now that sounds like a very abstract thing and modeling trees in a forest or something like that is, is kind of not something that sort of comes up every day. Um, on the other hand, very often we do want the output of things of different say supervised learning algorithms to be uh, to be more than just a label for something. Um, and we often want them to be sets. A common kind of example is sort of like a situation like image search. You know, you type in a query and the query comes back. You know, what you get back is a set of images that are related to that query in some way. So it's like Google image search. Now, you, there are a lot of duplicate images on the web and there might be a very good image out there. And, but a user isn't going to be happy if all of their results are sort of variants of like the exact same image, right? Even if it's a very good one, getting, you know, 100 copies of it is not an interesting thing to do. So what you want to do is not just have a measure of quality 
of the set that you get back in something like an image search. But you also want a measure of diversity. So you'd like, you're okay if some of the images aren't quite as good as, as long as they span a range of possible things you might want. And it turns out that this comes up quite often in a lot of different kinds of models. And there are a few different ways to tackle it. The determinantal point process is a, is a really nice one because it allows us to import these ideas um, about kernels, which we, you know, we understand pretty well. And the reason it's called a determinantal point process is because uh, you actually compute the determinant of the kernel matrix you would get from a set of data. And the determinant turns out to have kind of nice geometric properties that roughly correspond to volume. And so you can think of a more diverse set as kind of occupying a kind of a larger volume in space. So this is a really interesting area. Quite a few different people are, are thinking about it. And I think, I think we'll see kind of people study this more and more as alternatives to other kinds of ways to do what's called structured prediction, which is doing things like supervised learning with more complicated types of output objects. So I think, I think it's a fun area. It's worth checking out. There's a lot of math to, to, uh, that you know, we're not going to be able to talk about today, but, um, but we'll link to some papers and, and you, can, you can have a look. Definitely. And you can find those papers on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. So this week's listener question is about function approximation and comes from India. Hi, uh, Catherine and Ryan. Uh, my name is Jaydev Deshpande. I am a data scientist at a startup in India where we use uh, machine learning to solve problems in logistics and e-commerce, uh, among other things. Uh, my question is to do with uh, machine learning as function approximation. Um, specifically, to what extent can we think of machine learning as approximating functions? And when we say that, uh, do we mean functions in the classic uh, mathematical sense? Uh, if so, uh, are there classes of functions that cannot be learned? And also, which uh, popular machine learning algorithms fall under this category? Thanks a lot. Yeah, so th this is a really interesting question, and it's sort of uh, it's sort of an interesting complement to the question we answered a couple of weeks ago about the relationship between machine learning and optimization. And just like then, machine learning is very related to uh, to function approximation, but it's not just function approximation any more than it's just optimization. So, function approximation within machine learning, I think, is is most closely related to ideas from supervised learning. And what we're really doing with with supervised learning is learning a function and a function that is uh, defined in a way that is exactly like the mathematical form, uh, the way mathematically we think about functions. That is to say that there's some domain that we care about, and the domain might be you know, natural text or images or something, and we're trying to produce, say, a label, and that label is the, you know, the range of this function. It's, it's essentially inputs and outputs. And we're hoping that a few examples allow us to learn uh, a broad range of behaviors of that function. Learning that well is, is exactly function approximation, whether it's regression or classification or more complicated things like structured prediction, like we mentioned a few minutes ago. But it's not just function approximation, right? We need to figure out what the space of these functions should be. We need to sort of understand what the features should be. We need to understand our losses. We need to ultimately figure out some way to fit it, whether we're thinking about things like you know, stochastic gradient descent or, uh, or Markov chain Monte Carlo or a variety of, of other methods. So many algorithms can be framed in this way, but it's not kind of the end of the story. Um, for example, you know, in reinforcement learning, we often care about things like value functions. So these are functions that tell us the kind of expected reward associated with a particular state or maybe a particular state action pair. 
And our objective often in doing reinforcement learning is to try to learn what that value function is. And we can view that through the lens of function approximation. Uh, similarly, if you're doing unsupervised learning, then uh, you know often we like to think of that as trying to do density estimation. And so then again, what we're trying to perhaps do is fit a probability density function to data and we can view that through the lens of a function approximation. So it's a very nice way to reason about the kind of problems we're solving, but it's kind of not the whole story um, any more than regression is the whole story for, for machine learning. Um, now, there was another aspect of your question, which was, you know, are there things that we can't learn? And the answer to that is, is certainly yes. There are, uh, you know, real analysis and uh, in the study of things like fractals are full of functions that are kind of crazy and pathological and that maybe, you know, you make some tiny little move in the input space and it results in dramatic effects on, on the output. Um, and these are things that we can reason about formally and mathematically. Um, but we tend to not care about those kinds of functions very much when we do machine learning. And, and the reason is because when we... Um, when we do machine learning, we're trying to make assumptions about the world that are going to map, um, you know, they're going to map well onto the way that the world really works so we can make predictions. This is what we often refer to as our inductive bias. What are the assumptions we're willing to make about the world that allow us to generalize? And we have to make assumptions because as we say in machine learning, there's, there's no free lunch. You can't make one algorithm that's going to be good for every possible situation. And the kind of assumptions that we, we like to make are that the world is well-behaved. That, um, you know, that can mean a lot of different things, but in the case of function approximation, that means our functions are kind of smooth. If I uh, take a little step in input space, then it doesn't change very much the value in the output space. And there are lots and lots of functions that don't have that property, and we just sort of don't bother trying to learn those because those are sort of unlearnable. Would we like to be able to learn every possible thing? I mean, we would, but it's not possible, so we focus on the ones that that actually matter and, and are willing to kind of exclude those from, from our models of the world. Great. Well, thank you so much for your question. And if you have a question, you can reach us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or on Twitter at T-L-K-N-G-M-C-H-N-S. And the questions have been really great so far, right? Yeah, I'm really impressed. Yeah, so keep coming. So today, as promised, we are bringing you the second half of our interview uh, from NIPS with Jeff Hinton, Yashua Bengio, and Jan LeCun. And uh, it was just really, really excellent to hear them speak with each other. Yeah, really a lot of fun. And, uh, and we're going to pick up with Jeff Hinton talking a little bit more about the history of neural networks. Well, I guess what happened was we were struggling with all sorts of different methods for making neural nets work better. All three of us were convinced they were going to work in the end. It was just a question of time. And the first method that made a breakthrough was this unsupervised learning of layers of features. So you learn one layer of features and then you treat those features when they're being driven by the input as if they were data and learn another layer of features. And that started working in about 2005. And we started getting some nice results on small data sets. And then Yoshua's group did a very nice paper um, with lots of empirical work showing that it really did work. And that then led to some students of mine taking the heart of a speech recognizer and replacing it with a deep net. And to begin with, it worked a little bit better. And then when they did a better job of it, um, after talking to more speech people, it did a lot better. 
and that was in 2000, the first one was in 2009, and by 2012 that was in the Android and was giving much better speech recognition. And now it's in all the smartphones, the ones that do speech. And um, then in about 2012, um, it should have been Jan's group, but Jan was unlucky. Um, he didn't have a student who really wanted to do it. And in my group, I had a couple of students who really wanted to do it. And so we took all of Jan's techniques and added a couple more, and we got a spectacular result on computer vision. And that really shook people up because, you know, speech was already converted to this. And then computer vision, the improvement was even bigger than it had been in speech. And more or less overnight, these senior computer vision researchers said, hey, this stuff works better than our stuff. We're going to do this stuff. Um, and that's what's... And now people are trying it for everything. I mean, yeah. they're trying it for identifying the Higgs boson, and it works better for that. And they're trying it for sort of predicting, will this drug bind to that target, and it works better for that. It's just all over the place. Now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so <clears throat> there is, uh, you know, different aspects to this, to this story. Um, this is a, a very uh, essential one. Um, another aspect is that uh, I kind of stopped working on machine learning, really, between, uh, say, 1997 and 2002. Uh, I was working on other things at AT&T, image compression. Um, and so this was the, the sort of, you know, neural net winter, the, the sort of height of the neural net winter, if you want. Um, and I was just simply um, uh, interested in other things. And then when I went back to doing this, uh, this kind of research, um, I um, was working at NEC briefly and uh, then, you know, in, uh, at NYU, um, I sort of went back into this, this topic. My goal had always been to uh, integrate the the entire chain of, uh, of of recognition or you know content understanding from end to end. So, commercial nets are a way of integrating feature extraction with um, with classification. But of course, if you want to do things like uh, image parsing or uh, handwriting recognition or speech recognition, you always have something at the back that sort of pulls out the sort of proper interpretation and takes care of all the constraints. So if you do handwriting recognition, you need a language model. You need to make sure the sequence of, of characters actually forms a word. If you do speech recognition, you need to figure out that you know the sequence of sounds is actually a, a word of a, you know a particular word in the language. Um, so. In fact, Joshua started working on this uh, for his PhD thesis w way back for speech recognition, as well as Daniel Botu and Patrick Hafner. Um, I essentially hired all three of them at Bell Labs um, in the early 90s so that we could crack the problem of handwriting recognition. And something that's not very widely known is that uh, a crucial aspect of the success of the handwriting recognition systems that we built at Bell Labs was not just a commercial net. It was also this back end, the fact that we could train the entire system end to end uh, to recognize multiple characters, an entire word. Um, on, in the process of doing this, we invented something that we now call CRF, essentially. Um, but it was completely forgotten. Conditional random field. Conditional random field. Uh, the, the, the sort of, you know, financial paper for this came several years later and came from actually, uh, you know, colleagues from Bell Labs who knew about, about this, but, but it was kind of formulated in a slightly different way that was easier for, for people to digest. But, but the idea of using essentially you know, unnormalized uh, graphical models or factor graphs was, was in this uh, 1998 paper uh, that uh, Joshua Leon, Patrick, and I wrote. Um, that was largely forgotten. It's still, to some extent, a little bit forgotten. Um, but I'm, I'm sort of a believer that uh, this is going to come back. So the kind of combination of inference uh, uh, in the form of inference in a graphical model with deep learning, uh, where the, the entire system is trained end to end. Uh, we see that coming back um, 
uh, a little bit. We had you know paper paper at the workshop here at NIPS, uh, you know a couple of papers during the conference that kind of attempted to do this. So I think that's kind of an important aspect: integrating reasoning with uh, with deep learning. Um, so uh, in the in the history of things, um, uh, I, I tried to. I, I kind of got into this mode in the early 2000s after the start of the NCAP program uh, of two modes. One was uh, work on unsupervised learning. And the funny thing is that all three of us basically had the same philosophy about this, but we used, we had sort of different favorite methods. Uh, so Jeff was really kind of, you know, uh, uh, enamored with Richard Boseman machines. Uh, um, you know, we were kind of interested in something called sparse autoencoders. Uh, and Yoshua had like, you know, 2,537 ideas. Uh, of different ways to do this and kind of try everything, um, uh, you know, play the portrait role there. So, um, but in the end, I was, you know, simultaneously with this, I was also kind of trying to to try to show to the world that convolutional nets were actually working. So we had several attempts at doing this, you know, here is a convolutional net that you train to drive a little truck and it actually drives it, right? And here is uh, another one where you put it in a big robot and it drives the robot and avoids obstacle. And here's another one where you can do, you know, object recognition under complete invariance of, you know, through rotation. We actually collected our own data set for this. And here is another one where, um, you know, you can do full uh, image uh, segmentation. So you can show an image to the system and the system will label every pixel with the category of the object it belongs to. This is a problem in computer vision called semantic segmentation. Um, and, all, um, and with this particular one, we actually uh, beat the record on three data sets, three different data sets by a big margin um, and with commercial nets and had a system that was 100 times faster than the, the best competitor whose performance was, was, was less. Uh, but still the paper was rejected from the computer vision conference for in inexplicable re uh, reasons. In fact, the reason was that the reviewers just didn't know what the convolutional net was. We're talking 2011. Wow. wow. Okay. Um, but they also rejected it because it was doing learning. They said, if it's yes. doing learning, we don't understand how it works inside, so it's not interesting. That's right. So, so there was, uh, so I was, I considered myself an integral part of the vision community. I started, uh, you know, going systematically to CVPR. I was actually program chair of CVPR in 2006. Um, and, and you know, it, it wasn't like a war of the deep learning people against the computer vision community. I considered myself part of it. Um, but trying to convince people there that eventually people will use feature learning because that was the obvious uh, solution. And, it, it, you know, it went against a very ingrained um, um, kind of philosophy in computer vision where most, a lot of people there build a career around the whole idea of building features. Um, but there was one kind of surprising uh, change of opinion in that respect, which is a gentleman called David Lowe, who is at UBC uh, in Vancouver, who um, is the inventor of the SIFT uh, feature, uh, um, feature extractor, which is extremely popular in computer vision. And there was an interesting workshop uh, three years ago at the MIT on the future of computer vision, where all the computer vision community you know, got together and said, what, what is where is computer vision going for the next few years? All the you know, program managers for funding agencies were here, you know, everybody. Um, and, and David Lowe said, you know, the future is feature learning. This is you know, the, the kind of stuff Jan is, is doing, and, and you know, commercial net, that's the greatest thing. He'd done a little bit of work on this. Um, and there was a whole session on deep learning uh, Rob Fergus kind of gave an introductory talk, and Ring gave a talk, which didn't go very well at all. Um, I mean, didn't was not really sort of uh, received well by the community. And I, g I gave a talk, you know, and the title of my talk was um, um, "In Five Years, All of You Will Be Learning Your Features. You Might As Well Start Now." I was wrong. It only took three years. <laughs> uh, so it, it's. 
what, what happened was that the, the evidence was there that those methods were working uh, and working better than a lot of techniques, but they were easily dismissed by people who could say, oh, this is an isolated example, you know, it's just that we haven't tried hard enough with our methods, uh, with, you know, with the other methods, and so it's not, it's not definite. But the, the results of the, uh, uh, of, you know, Jeff's uh, team, uh, the ImageNet uh, 2012 was so overwhelming that, uh, that, you know, there was no, there's no discussion anymore. Right. And data always wins, right? You can engineer all you want, but if you can learn it from massive data sets, then... Yeah, the theorems have only so much weight. Uh, when you really have the error rate on something, people really pay attention. Yeah. So it's very humbling to some extent for uh, you know engineers to think that stochastic gradient descent on GPUs are better than they are at designing vision systems. But it's true. It is, right. One thing I'd like to uh, say, come back to some of the questions you asked, is that from the historical perspective, something really important happened, which is that a few people, um, Jeff, Jan, I, and a, f a few others, stuck to their vision of uh, what, what they really uh, believe was the right way of doing things. And it, it's not easy to do that. You go against uh, the fashion of the day, um, and uh, it's it's easy to uh, also go wrong in this and stick to your ideas and you know uh, not look at the evidence. But I think for research, for long-term breakthroughs, long-term research and real breakthroughs, it's really important to look deep down and and if you really believe in something and you have a strong intuition about it of course the evidence is always important but um you you may need that strong uh feeling to 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 carry through difficult times and uh patiently continue to understand what is going on and and and, and demonstrate your your ideas that's one of the most important lessons for young people who are wondering what to do and um how how to decide what what you know in which direction to to research so there are, there are sort of a, a human component to this which is um uh what happens to students who embarked on the you know the the, the, the sort of you know quixotic quest of their of their uh, advisors so i started being an academic in 2003 which means my first batch of students graduated around 2008 2009 2010 uh and 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 it was also the time of the uh, sort of you know economic uh, crash essentially. So there were no jobs for them, uh, no jobs in academia for sure. Universities were not hiring. Deep learning was re really frowned upon as a as a field, and so none of those people who are excellent got jobs in uh, uh, academia. And in fact, many of them had trouble you know getting jobs at places like Google and things like this, which w hadn't adopted the philosophy yet. Um, they got pretty good jobs at you know NEC, SRI, and AT&T and places like this. Uh, but in the last two years, you know, it turns out they were the only people who knew anything about, about uh, neural nets who were, had a little bit of experience, you know, perhaps even were managers in their group and you know, had sort of the early papers and they're all millionaire now. Right. right. And you'd have thought people would have learned, but we're now working on the next good idea and the same problem is arising. So I've got a couple of very good students who've done their theses on the next good idea. One of them got a job at Google, but mainly because he managed to port the speech recognition system to them. <laughs> and the field just never learns. Um, everybody now, you can publish any papers you like on deep learning. But if you say, well, there's something deeply wrong with deep learning, and we need to change the way we're doing things, it's impossible to get them published. 
<laughs> it's ironic, isn't it? <laughs> what do you think it's going to take to change that? I mean, hasn't the lesson sort of been learned at this point? <laughs> and you, I and think you it's human nature. I think it's very, very easy to accept papers if they're small incremental improvements on things you understand. And it's very hard, particularly if the referees are very junior, to accept a crazy idea that seems totally wrong-headed um, but is weird. I mean, people just react them. So what, one of, we've been trying to fix this. Uh, I've been sort of proposing a new pu uh, publication model, uh, which uh, you know would would perhaps have fewer false negatives in kind of uh, rejecting brand new ideas that are very innovative. Uh, and uh, Yosha and I have been organizing a conference called iClear, International Conference on Learning, Learning Representations, which is essentially kind of the hub for the deep learning community, if you want. Um, and we, we have a sort of open review process, so people put their paper on, on, on archive, um, and, and, and it's being reviewed by official reviewers, but the reviews are published, and then anybody can comment on the, on the papers. And it's proven to be a very efficient and fruitful uh, system um, um, uh, for, for new ideas. I mean, there's a lot of really, really interesting papers uh, at, at this conference. Um, so, I, I mean, I think, I'm, I'm hoping that this model will be adopted by other larger conferences, but it, uh, it runs uh, against very ingrained um, uh, sort of, you know, uh, point counting uh, things like double bond reviews and, and things like that. And it's important to change the way we do science because the the current system for evaluating papers is very noisy. So this year at NIPS, there was an experiment that was run by which the same paper was uh, submitted twice in some sense and a different set of reviewers and, and editors were looking at it. And a lot of the papers were on one hand accepted and the other hand rejected, much higher than some people expect now. Um, what it says is that we have to take with a grain of salt those decisions, but also I think it questions the way we are doing things, and we, we need to make sure that good ideas can be propagated quickly, not having to wait the approval of reviewers who can easily make a mistake. And that's one of the uh, motivations for this uh, new way of um, thinking about the uh, process of uh, evaluating papers and publishing. We're going to have to come to this eventually because, uh, or something like this, th there's a, a recent uh, phenomenon that occurred just in the last month where a number of different teams started using the so-called Microsoft Cocoa dataset, which um, is sort of a new kind of dataset for images that includes descriptions of images in text. So a lot of people had the idea of using a deep convolutional net to uh, recognize the image. Uh, and then uh, some sort of recurrent neural net to generate the text description. Uh, there's eight different papers on this topic that were written at the same time, all submitted to the CVPR conference, which is a double-blind, uh, uh, has double-blind review process. Uh, some of those were uh, picked up by the press. You know, this is, there's so much interest in deep learning that the, the authors pretty much all posted their paper on archive, because CVPR allows that. But then some companies made press release uh, or some universities, some, some of the groups made press release and they were picked up by the press. And so now the, the whole idea of double blind review disappears because, uh, you know, this paper is talked about uh, in a Wired magazine, New York Times, and, and whatever. And uh, so it's becoming impossible essentially to do double blind reviewing. And, uh, and of course, that creates biases towards authors that are very uh, senior. Um, so the solution to this is open review where, you know, reviews are published in the open and in that case uh, biases is more obvious and so people tend to be less biased. So Jan Lecun, Jeff Hinton and Yashua Bengio, it's just really 
always fascinating to hear them in conversation with each other. Yeah, it's really fun. And I love the sort of larger scientific context that they discuss oh, some yeah. of these things in. And it's very exciting, the, the kind of innovations that, uh, that like Jan was talking about mm -hmm. with, uh, with publication models. It's Definitely. really, really cool stuff. Yeah, so we'll see how that pans out in the future. And that's it for us this week here on Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And we'll see you next episode.